Actually, the motto in the chief coroner's office is, we speak for the dead to protect the living. And that's my mission, to make sure we just don't forget who died, but we remember them and remember them the way to prevent the same tragedy happening over and over again. Welcome to the latest episode of the In Practice podcast, where we talk with practitioners about their work, including challenges and how they address them, new tools and trends, best practices and reforms. I'm Catherine Ford, Director of Child Witness Initiatives at the Center for Court Innovation, and today I'm talking with Dr. Peter Jaffe from the University of Western Ontario in Canada. He's an internationally renowned expert on domestic violence in children, and will be talking with us today about the risk to children in domestic violence situations, specifically the risk of homicide, and strategies for reducing that risk. This topic is highly relevant to all practitioners who work on domestic violence cases in any professional role or context, so we thank you for joining us, Dr. Jaffe. Thank you for inviting me, Catherine. So let's start out with some common language. Can you tell us what is child domestic homicide and how often does it happen? Well, there's a number of different uh, figures for child domestic homicide across the world. First and foremost, it's important to recognize that child homicide usually happens as an extension of child abuse in children's lives. We know, for example, according to the latest United Nations reports, that up to a billion children between ages 2 to 17 have experienced physical, sexual, or emotional violence or neglect. And we also know of those children, a smaller number, uh, over 200,000 between ages birth and 14 years have lost their lives due to child homicide. So we know that this is a significant problem across the world and, and also a significant problem uh, in the U.S. It's estimated that in the U.S. over the last 10 years, on average, there's about 450 children who are victims of homicide. And can you tell us a little bit about the ways in which these homicides of children take place or can take place within the context of intimate partner violence as well? Most children under age 14 are killed by parents. And we know that this happens both with mothers and fathers. And we also know that within this context, one of the most significant warning signs is a history of family violence or domestic violence in the family and also a recent separation. So when we talk about children killed in the context of domestic violence, we're obviously referring to children who are killed within a family system where there's been a history of prior violence. I know that this is a topic that you've done a lot of work around, including some research projects and your recent work on the Domestic Violence Fatality Review in Canada. Can you tell us about your work regarding child domestic homicide? Since uh, 2002, we've had a, a Domestic Violence Death Review Committee within our jurisdiction, the province of Ontario. It's a multidisciplinary committee that's run through the office of the chief coroner where we have a chance to review background information with families where there's been a domestic homicide. The information comes from interviews with surviving family members, friends, family, co-workers, and frontline professionals such as police or child protection family physicians who may have been involved in the, in the past. So over the years, we've accumulated data particularly focused on child homicides, and we've looked at the extent to which they're 
are warning signs that precede the homicides. And what we've seen repeatedly that in over three quarters of the cases we reviewed, there are seven or more well-known risk markers associated with domestic homicide. And so obviously this has been a, a major focus of our work. We've also expanded nationally over the last five years. We've been working on a national grant that involves 12 partners in different universities across the country, as well as over 60 community partners trying to understand more about this vulnerable population and the risk factors associated with child homicide. Can you tell us about what some of those risk factors are that you've identified? One of our overarching findings is that the same risk factors that are associated with domestic homicide are associated with uh, children killed in the context of domestic homicide. So some of those factors may include a prior history of domestic violence, uh, actual or pending separation between the parents, a partner stalking the other partner, the victim, depression in the male perpetrator or potentially other mental health problems, prior threats by the perpetrator to commit suicide or attempt suicide, escalation of the violence over time, as well as perpetrators attempt to isolate the victim. In many of the cases, victims had an intuitive sense of fear about the situation, was worried about the escalation of violence. It's important to recognize that these uh, child domestic homicides don't happen out of the blue. Usually there's information known to family, friends, police, uh, family lawyers, co-workers, child protection or medical personnel who had previous experience with the family. What I hear you saying, Dr. Jaffe, is that the risk factors that have been identified as indicators of greater risk of lethality for adult survivors of intimate partner violence are similar to the indicators of high risk to children in domestic violence situations. Is that correct? Yes, um, that's correct. And obviously our concern in the field is often uh, these risk factors are ignored and often children aren't seen as being at risk of homicide in the context of domestic violence. In the U.S., over the last number of years, on average, there's about 2,000 domestic homicides. About a third of them might be domestic homicides and and suicides. What's often overlooked is that in about 20% of the cases, uh, children are also the victims of the homicide. So there's cases where only the children are killed, and there's cases where the children and their a mother is killed, and there's also cases where where the whole family is is killed, and the perpetrator kills himself. So when I talk about child homicide, I'm particularly focused on uh, children who are killed in the context of this history, and they're they're often overlooked as as being at risk of this violence. Certainly, and one thing I saw um, in your research was some discussion about um, perpetrators or specifically men who cause harm, making threats to harm the children. And that has been found to be a significant indicator of risk to the children, but is something that practitioners are really asking about or documenting. And there have been many situations in which survivor mothers, in fact, brought these concerns and documentation of these threats to the attention of the family court, for example, and um, the threats were not taken seriously. Is that something you could speak to? It's a, a very important point because there's a, there's a tendency to ignore or minimize the potential uh, risk to children, and it often gets played out within the context of the, uh, of the family court. 
maybe just come back to a, a, a word in, in terms of definitions. When we talk about child homicides, we recognize it's often parents who are the perpetrators, and we use the term paternal filicide to refer to the fathers killing the children and maternal filicide to refer to mothers killing the children. When fathers kill the children, it's more likely to be an act of revenge or retaliation because they're angry at their partner leaving the relationship. And if they can't get back at her, uh, they try to get even by harming the children. And, and this is a, a pattern that has been that we've seen repeatedly, both in the U.S. and in Canada. And it certainly raises alarms that we have to do a better job to identify these risks within the within the family court. Uh, often this is can be extremely challenging because with domestic violence, sometimes there are not, you know, eyewitnesses or medical reports or sometimes there's no police reports. So it's really the credibility of the victim versus the credibility of the uh, alleged perpetrator as to what happened and in the past and, and what the safety concerns are. So there, there needs to be in, certainly increased education for all those involved in the family court. They obviously judges, uh, lawyers, um, advocates, professionals like psychologists or social workers who may be involved in doing child custody evaluations need to identify these potential risks and then develop appropriate, appropriate parenting plans that recognize the risks Speaking more about the risk factors, I know you've mentioned that the indicators of a high level of risk to adult survivors are very similar statistically to the indicators of a high level of risk to children in these situations. Um, And I know you did a research study looking at the existing domestic violence risk assessment tools, specifically the danger assessment and the Be Safer. And you had that finding about the similar risk factors, but there were two things that stood out as indicative of additional harm to the children, which were threats to harm the children and the abuser's history of intimate relationship problems. Is that something you could speak to? Certainly. uh, Overall, certainly if the adult victim is at risk, one has to consider that the children may also be at risk. And and beyond that, when we, we looked at cases where there was a child homicide and compared them to cases where where the children survived, we did find certainly for the danger assessment, the additional factor of the perpetrator actually making threats to harm the children and looking at the be safer, clearly looking at a a history of uh, problems within intimate relationships was a factor. So again, that factor by itself uh, obviously should be taken seriously, but looking at the overall pattern I think we always have to be cautious and make sure that we're doing safety planning both for the adult victim and for the child. Dr. Jaffe, could you talk a little bit about the domestic violence risk assessment tools and what you feel needs to happen in order to strengthen them and their ability to predict child domestic homicide? Well, child domestic homicides are relatively rare events, so it's they're obviously hard to predict. But having said that, I think what the current research in the field would suggest that it's important to use a structured approach rather than just using one's clinical opinion or, or previous experience. 
And by using a more structured approach, there's a number of tools. There's, uh, I think, in the literature now, according to the most recent reviews, there are probably something like 70 different tools that use in different contexts to protect either recidivism or potential lethal violence. Probably the most important message I would share is that it's important to have a tool and make sure one is up to date on current data on reliability and validity of the tool. But the most important thing is uh, having a tool is use a very structured approach uh, to identify risk factors. I certainly think the danger assessment and the be safer are both excellent tools. They're not the only ones. A critical issue is thinking about what sector one is working in, whether one is uh, working for the police or, or working as an advocate within the uh, within the justice system or shelters for abuse victims finding a tool that makes sense for that setting and making sure one can get proper access to information about the history of the relationship and and potential risk factors that have to be identified. So again, it's it's important to to document the risk factors in a in a very structured way and probably one of the most important lessons that we've learned from our death review work is that that assessment has to lead to safety planning and risk management. A risk assessment should never be seen as an end in itself. It has to be part of an overall process to, to find safety uh, for victims and children. I was wondering if you could talk with us a little bit more about some of the practical implications um, for the research and what for what we know at this time about child domestic homicide in terms of what practitioners can actually do to identify and reduce the level of risk to children. The first important step is even acknowledging this is possible um, because in our experience from our death review work and also other death reviews across Canada and the U.S., uh, many professionals are shocked uh, when children are killed and don't even see that as a possibility. So, you know, having general awareness about risk is important. Beyond the awareness uh, of the risk is actually taking a very structured approach to identifying you know, the history and the relationship and and the various risk factors uh, that are present, which is, I think, another practical implication. And then doing something with the information in terms of developing a safety plan, you know, for example, you know, ensuring that there's any visitation that takes place that it's uh, appropriately supervised if there are visits at all to make sure that there's counseling in place, you know, for children who may have been traumatized by the exposure to violence, making sure there's counseling for the the victim, making sure there's counseling for the perpetrator that they get referred to an appropriate batter intervention program, I think is critical. And one of the other uh, emerging areas that's developing is getting specialized counseling for the perpetrator as a parent. So there's a number of new programs that focus on the perpetrator getting help, not just for the role of being an abusive intimate partner, but also being an abusive parent and and exposing their children to this violence. Can you tell us a little bit more about what safety planning around the risks to children might include or how that might look? I think one of the starting points is making sure there's only contact if it's safe. That clearly, uh, if an individual has a history of domestic violence, one has to recognize uh, that they may not be an appropriate role model for children. Children may not be safe in their presence. They may be drawn in to undermine the non-abusive parent. Even new relationships they have may be potentially violent. 
So clearly one of the first steps, you know, is to make sure any contact is supervised. And before there's any consideration of unsupervised contact, to make sure that there's appropriate counseling programs in place. For, for example, one of the challenges we often see is that individuals with a history of domestic violence are given unsupervised contact and they've never even acknowledged the history of violence. They've never acknowledged the impact of the violence on their partner and on, the, on their children. And without those foundational steps, it's hard to think about having you know, a healthy and safe uh, parenting relationship between the abuser and the child. I know from our previous conversations that one of the additional practical implications that's come out of the death review process that you've been a part of in Canada is regarding cross-agency collaboration and information sharing. What do you think are some of the practices that you recommend regarding that issue? I think an important starting point in collaboration is to do joint training across uh, different agencies and different systems so, so individuals are sharing a common language about risk and also remedies to risk. Particularly when we're talking about child homicide, there's obviously prior history with the victim, with victim services, uh, more focused on adults. There may be contact with child protection services that are had been focused on safety of the children. And often those systems have failed to coordinate their efforts, both in terms of assessment and intervention. So I think cross-training is, is really essential. And then there's also the, the important element of working across community agencies and professionals, but also working within the justice system. So for example, domestic violence cases may end up either in the, in the criminal court, involved in criminal proceedings, and professionals in, who may be involved in that, in that system, such as uh, probation officers and, and police officers. But those cases are also involved in the family court, which may involve uh, either family lawyers or, uh, or advocates who are, who are working with the victim. So clearly there, there's a need to coordinate efforts between community agencies and the justice system to, to make sure whatever parenting plans are, are put, in, uh, put into effect are safe ones for the uh, children and also the adult victims. I think one of the challenging things has been the use of the term parent alienation in, in more recent years to deal with domestic violence allegations. So in general, what we see happening in family courts across the U.S. and Canada is you have a, a victim, adult victim, who comes to court with serious concerns about her safety and the children's safety. And at the same time, you may have the other parent, usually the father, saying that the violence is really just a false allegation and it really the mother's attempting to, to ruin the children's relationship with him. And often uh, that parent or their lawyer will use the term parent alienation. And this has become an increasing concern um, because there's no such thing as parental alienation in the face of domestic violence. If a parent has experienced uh, domestic violence, they have every right to have concerns about limiting their children's contact with the other parent. So it's not a question of alienation, it's a question of that parent developing a safety plan and needing support from community agencies and the court. So this is a um, a very hot-button issue these days in family court, and there's a lot of cases that are poorly managed because 
judges, lawyers, and mental health professionals have not been able to properly assess what's going on in the case and really identify the history of domestic violence. As you know, one of the audiences for our podcast today is court practitioners. So you've already talked about assessing the level of risk to children in domestic violence situations and considering children to be at high risk when their non-offending caregivers are also at high level of risk. And you've talked as well about informed decision-making regarding custody and visitation and making sure that families are mandated to agency-based supervised visitation or access is prohibited when there is a high level of risk to the child and or the parent. Is there anything else that you think courts should be doing regarding this issue? Well, first and foremost, I I think there needs to be uh, renewed efforts at public and professional education. I think it's important that communities recognize how much children are at risk from domestic violence just in terms of their emotional and physical well-being just as a starting place and i still think that in many communities that that reality is not recognized Uh, beyond that awareness and i think an essential part of training for lawyers and social workers uh, and police and other professionals involved with either the criminal justice system or the family court system uh, need to recognize that the risk to children may include uh, lethal violence, and doing an appropriate risk assessment is essential. So I, I think it's important to then know that just doing a risk assessment can never be an end in itself. So you certainly want the courts to be cautious and vigilant in taking steps to protect children, at least on an interim basis, while they're maybe getting more information. So one of the things that's that is true of many court proceedings that information may come out over time. So the the courts may have to be involved in having a, a more conservative decision on visitation until they have a more comprehensive assessment and they can understand more deeply the the nature, frequency, and severity of the violence that's, that's taken place. So I think that's critical. I also think that as we're learning more about what we need to do to protect children, also protect adult victims and support them in their parenting. I think we also have to do something to help perpetrators. Most perpetrators want to change, but they may require some initial motivation and realization of the harm that the violence has done. And I think it's important to find ways to engage them in intervention efforts, both as a as an intimate partner and also as a parent. So I think a critical skill, for, I think, for lawyers and judges is, is really how to motivate perpetrators to get involved in counseling and, and a significant intervention. I should say, as we talk about these issues on this podcast, I, I realize I often refer to the victim as she and the perpetrator as he. And I just want to be very clear that when we talk about domestic homicide and we talk about children killed in the context of domestic violence, that it tends not to be a gender-neutral issue, that when we look at the victims of domestic homicide, there's a significant ratio of women as victims compared to men across the U.S. and Canada. It's about a four or five to one ratio of women who are killed. And when children who are are killed, which is about 20% of the cases, Often it's the the father who's killing as an act of revenge after separation and often after uh, family court proceedings fighting over custody and visitation rights. So 
it's difficult to be gender neutral when the when the numbers are so overwhelming but it's important to recognize it and also important to recognize that each case is unique so obviously there are women who kill children and we have to be aware of the risks of maternal filicide and there's also children who may be killed in the context of, of same-sex relationships so we have to recognize the diversity of parents who may be before the court seeking safety and support. Another one of the practitioner roles is supervised visitation. When families do get to supervised visitation providers, what are the practical implications for those providers in terms of identifying and reducing the risk to children? There'll be a variety of supervised visitation settings. I think it's important that Everything is done possible to make sure that the victim dropping off the children is clearly separated from the uh, perpetrator's entry to the supervised visitation center. So clearly being able to create a physically safe place for the exchanges or the visits of children. Also supervising closely in terms of it's not always just the uh, acts of perpetrators is also the things they may say or do that may be emotionally abusive or undermining the other parent. So clearly there needs to be some close supervision within that area. Again, there's I know that there's a whole range of supervised visitation centers in terms of uh, their orientation, in terms of how, met, how many resources they have available and what kind of counseling they can do beyond the immediate supervised visitation. But I think certainly the extent to which a center can encourage parents to get assistance beyond the visits, because obviously the visit is is only one small piece of a longer-term parenting relationship. So obviously getting children and parents involved in community counseling, I think, is uh, is essential. So those are, those are some of the initial thoughts I would have on that. The last role I'd like to ask you about is civil legal services. You did mention a bit about what attorneys can do, but is there anything you'd like to add? I think uh, attorneys and advocates play a particularly critical role. And I think working with victims of domestic violence can be difficult or challenging because part of the process often is in engaging an individual uh, to feel safe enough to share what they've experienced and what their needs are. For example, we know from the from the research that at least half of domestic violence victims change their mind on going ahead with the, with the court system. Uh, they may be looking for an immediate remedy in terms of safety, but the extent to which the court process becomes cumbersome and requires repeated contacts, they may f- at some point feel emotionally and financially drained to continue with the proceedings. So, you know, in our research in Canada and also in the U.S., you see at least 50% of victims change their mind and decide that they'll find some other way to access uh, the support they need. So a point I want to emphasize, the importance of uh, engagement and also the importance of empowering the victim to recognize the choices that she has and the remedies that, that may be available. I'd also want to emphasize that from the research that Jackie Campbell and others have done, about half of the victims don't necessarily recognize the fact that there may be lethal violence that they're facing and their children are facing. They may see their ex-partner as annoying, harassing, but they don't necessarily see him as dangerous. They may see him as you know, overly committed 
and interfering with the children, but they don't see them as dangerous to the children. So I think it's also important to provide an assessment and feedback for victims in those circumstances, you know, who may not fully recognize the risks that are posed by the uh, by the perpetrator. We also have many cases, certainly across our jurisdiction, where at some point the victims need the perpetrator. They need financial support. They might need childcare, and at some point they just want to abandon the process because they no longer want to be engaged in a long-term process when they have more immediate needs around the children. So I think it's important to offer support and feedback about the importance of maintaining safety and finding alternatives to, to get the support for the victim, whether it's financial support or housing or counseling, just to be able to keep children's safety first and foremost. Can you tell us, Dr. Jaffe, about how your interest in domestic violence and children developed? 45 years ago, I was a young psychologist. I was working on a unique program with the police. Our supervisor developed a crisis service. There was five civilians. I was one of them with mental health backgrounds who worked around the clock with the police responding to domestic violence calls. So this is certainly in the early days of the domestic violence movement. Um, Domestic violence was seen as a significant crisis in people's lives, but I think at the time we didn't really treat it necessarily as a as a criminal problem, and we didn't really recognize the long-term impact on victims and children. So as a young psychologist, uh, I fell in the deep end of, of this area, and I became overwhelmed with how frequent domestic violence calls were for the police and how complicated it was to provide support for victims and perpetrators and children traumatized by living with this violence. So that work with the police as part of a a crisis team um, got me actively involved in working with the police and the courts more deeply to assess the needs of family members. So in in our community, we developed a local coordinating committee with different service providers. We started developing counseling programs for children exposed to domestic violence and counseling programs for perpetrators, including programs for perpetrators as parents. We developed residential and non-residential services for victims. So I got involved in this in this issue at, at the time when many of these services started to develop. And uh, I, I saw how important the research was in, in raising awareness. And I went from the issue of the harm to children. One of my earliest research was really looking at the impact of exposure to domestic violence on children's adjustment problems, uh, their cognitive, behavioral, emotional problems resulting from this trauma. And I started to recognize that not only were children at risk of these harms, they were also at risk of losing their lives. And so some of our work then took us to the work of the Death Review Committee, both in our jurisdiction and elsewhere, where we saw a a number of these cases where there seemed to be so many missed opportunities. Uh, That's certainly the issue that keeps me going in the field is sort of repeatedly seeing these horrible tragedies and seeing all these warning signs and people saying, you know, I wish I would have done this or I wish I would have done that or I wish I knew more about this. So that's that's really what inspires uh, this work and certainly honors the voices of the survivors and the children who've been through this experience or who have lost their lives and they left their voices behind in text messages and emails and interviews with service providers. 
Thank you for sharing that. The last question I wanted to ask you, Dr. Jaffe, is what do you think are the next steps in terms of moving the field forward to address child domestic homicide? What do you think the research needs to be on this topic? You've talked a little bit about training, but anything else you want to share about kind of the next steps? The next steps in the field involve developing better risk assessment tools that focus on the risk that children face. So as of now, we have a lot of tools focused on adult victims, but there's really not enough that includes the risk to children. So uh, I think it'd be important to do research, particularly on, on those issues. And also looking at interventions that make a difference. When we're talking about children, we're often talking about interventions that require collaboration across systems, uh, social services, mental health, and courts. And I, I think we have failed in that area to really look at not only the risks, but also the, the remedies that are needed. So I think there needs to be more research on successful intervention strategies because it, it can't be left in the hands of one service provider, one organization that has to go across multiple service providers and multiple systems who are, who are involved in this issue. I think the, the family court is a critical area for research. I think there's been major strides in the criminal court. I think across the U.S. and Canada now, we have many more specialized judges who work on areas around domestic violence. We have specialized police officers and prosecutors and enhanced victim services. So that has evolved. The problem in family court, it's still every man and woman for themselves, and children are often forgotten, or children are just the spoils of a custody dispute or a parenting dispute. And I think there needs to be a much greater focus on what we do to protect children in the family court. This is especially important at this period of time because there's such a focus on joint parenting, joint custody, shared parenting, that parents being considered equal and having equal time with children and often a concern about who's the friendlier parent and a concern about the potential for parent alienation. And I think some of these issues fly in the face of recognizing domestic violence and undermine our ability to see risk and protect children. Dr. Jaffe, is there anything else that you'd like to add? It's a topic where I think it's important that people do reading and, and thinking. You know, there's no excuse for not knowing. There's so much information available around the harm to children from domestic violence, including lethal violence. And I think everyone in the community owes it to children and also to adult victims to to be aware and to and to be informed. A point that I often raise when I people like myself or others do this work, people often wonder about why we just haven't burned out and gotten depressed by looking at so many homicides. Because over the last 15 years, I've looked at over 400 domestic homicides, about a quarter of them involving children, either as victims or children who've lost one or both parents and have been traumatized by living with the aftermath of, of a domestic homicide. And the analogy I often use in my work is it's like looking at a plane crash. I feel like one of the investigators who's desperately looking for a black box after the plane crash, because I know I can't bring back the passengers who've been lost, but I can be sure that whatever errors existed in terms of how the plane was manufactured or 
or the pilot training that everything will be done to prevent a tragedy in similar circumstances in the future. So that's what drives me. And actually the motto in the chief coroner's office is we speak for the dead to protect the living. And that's my mission to make sure we just don't forget who died, but we remember them and remember them the way to prevent the same tragedy happening over and over again. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. My pleasure. Uh, Good luck with uh, your important work. And thank you for your work as well. I'm Catherine Ford of the Center for Court Innovation, and I've been speaking with Dr. Peter Jaffe from the University of Western Ontario in Canada about risks to children in domestic violence situations and steps practitioners can take to reduce those risks. To find out more about Dr. Jaffe's work with the Canadian Domestic Homicide Prevention Initiative, visit their website, www.cdhpi.ca. To learn more about the Center for Court Innovation and how we're helping practitioners address domestic violence, visit www.courtinnovation.org. You can subscribe to In Practice on your favorite podcasting app or drop us a line at info at courtinnovation.org. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to listen and subscribe to our new thinking podcast as well. Thanks to Bill Harkins, Emma Dayton, Robin Mazur, and Rob Wolf for their help producing this episode. Bye for now.